So I'm going to be introducing uh, Mario Rubin today. It is my pleasure to introduce him. He is he hails from Mass General and is currently our program director of the nephrology program, and he is one of the smartest clinical nephrologists I have ever met. So that is your introduction. <laughs> Without further ado, thank you. <laughs> no, that's you even want your money. It's completely true. You'll okay. See, you'll see well, ladies and gentlemen, let's get started. We have a lot to cover. Unfortunately, I remain overworked and underpaid, but uh, what can you do? So, um, international guidelines as far as how we define acute kidney injury, very well known to this audience. However, there are younger people. So we have agreed internationally that an increase in the serum creatinine by 0.3 milligrams per deciliter within 48 hours equals acute kidney injury, particularly the baseline kidney function is uh, known. And if that's not enough, we also look into urine volume, and if it is within the oliguric range, that uh, conforms part of the definition. This is a key slide, which I want this audience, particularly young people, to remember, which was compiled by the Acute Kidney Injury Network when they met in Amsterdam and they didn't invite me. Uh, basically points out individuals at increased risk for acute kidney injury. Those are the patients with underlying chronic kidney disease, the elderly, uh, and the diabetic uh, primarily. And these patients get exposed to whichever agent, ischemia, nephrotoxic, etc., and there is damage which then leads to a decrease in GFR, kidney failure, and eventually, unfortunately, in dialysis-dependent acute kidney injury, 50% of them will die. We in nephrology are still searching for the ideal renal uh, troponin. Um, there are many uh, candidates out there, and the one that uh, is looking more and more and more as the ideal uh, substance is the angle, but uh, stay tuned. Now, another concept which I want to emphasize is that there is more to acute kidney injury uh, than fluid overload, acidemia, hyperkalemia, and accumulation of uremic toxins. In fact, acute kidney injury is analogous to a systemic inflammatory response syndrome. There is a massive release of cytokines everywhere, with uh, damages to the heart, brain, lungs, liver, gut, bone, etc., uh, which is not just what you and I see, uh, but major increases in capillary fragility, apoptosis, and so forth. Acute kidney injury in the dreamland that we, the old timers, used to have, occasionally leads to full recovery of kidney function. Most of the time, speeds up the destruction of the kidneys towards chronic kidney disease or end-stage renal disease. And many, many, many studies have shown that over and over again. We used to rely on the rifle criteria. Those were stashed away in a museum. The Acute Kidney Injury Network has um, classified acute kidney injury into three stages. Um, stage one uh, is an increasing creatinine, like I mentioned, of one and a half times above the baseline, or 0.3 milligrams per deciliter in 48 hours. Uh, doubling of the serum creatinine constitutes stage two. Um, triple increase in the baseline creatinine is stage three. And there are corresponding changes in the urine output. For the most part, we start dialytic therapy at stage three, but that may be changing in the future, as we will see. Point to take uh, home is that as the stages of acute kidney injury get worse, so does the mortality with stages uh, three and those on dialysis pretty much approaching 50%, uh, which is a scary figure. Now, let me remind you that both forms of acute kidney injury, dialysis-dependent as well as dialysis-independent ones, are unfortunately increasing. 
with the risk, as I mentioned, for chronic kidney disease, end-stage renal disease, and death. This is recent data. It's a registry study uh, published by a joint effort by Dartmouth, Vanderbilt, and Tufts that clearly shows that over the last decade, the number of cases of acute kidney injury that are dialysis dependent in this country is skyrocketing. International studies, the so-called AKI EPI, EPI stands for Epidemiologic Prospective Investigation, have pointed out what I just told you, that more than half of ICU patients will develop acute kidney injury, and a lot of them, unfortunately, will die, and many of them will end up with progressive chronic kidney disease. Mortality in stage three across the globe is about sevenfold. Who gets it? Who is still in trouble? The elderly, as you can see, particularly 65 and up. Now, prevention. Fluids. Most of you went and bought shares with Baxter on plasma light. When this paper came out, implying that chloride-restrictive strategies will prevent or minimize the chances of acute kidney injury on the basis that chloride will <coughs> lead to increasing renovascular resistance, particularly at the single nephron. And um, after you bought it, you better begin to sell it because unfortunately there is a study that just came out this past October by the same authors that said that plasma light was ideal, questioning the advantages of plasma light in the prevention of acute kidney injury. Now, this is what is the problem with fluid replacement when you are oversellers and you don't know how to cut down on your fluid replacement, which is massive fluid overload, which is defined in the literature as an increase in body weight by about 10%. And as you can see, survival in the vertical axis, time in the horizontal axis, fluid overload is associated with increased mortality. Fluid overload, as the percentages increase, leads to skyrocketing mortality. The Picard study, which is to date one of the best studies ever done, randomized control study, done at, multi, at at least five uni academic centers, which stands for the problem to improve the care of acute renal disease, showed that patients that were not fluid overloaded uh, at the beginning of uh, dialysis had a far better prognosis than those that were fluid overloaded. The consequences of fluid overload are very well known to all of you, particularly the pulmonologists and critical care audience uh, in terms of acute lung injury, hepatologists have to deal with hepatic congestion, but what we as nephrologists have to deal with as well is the concept of nephrosarca. That is to say, renal edema leading to reduced uh, GFR, tubular interstitial uh, edema, and ultimately uh, decreases in renal blood flow and increases in renal resistance, grant you that the removal of fluid in patients like this is extremely beneficial. Now, a thing that has recently come out is the furosemide stress test, in case of some of you have not heard of it. So, Back in the 70s, the group at the University of Colorado made a tragic mistake. They told us that non-oliguric acute renal disease or oliguric renal disease, that is acute kidney injury, that is converted to non-oliguric via diuretics had a better prognosis. Not so. So we continue to dance around with this story, and this group, very renowned people, particularly Dr. Charlotte, which is next door at the Washington DC VA, have advocated the trial of furosemide in these patients. And if that trial is associated with an increase in urine output, they <coughs> suggest that those patients will have a better prognosis. There's nothing new about this. 
I mean, people have tried it. People have gone up to a gram of furosemide in the old days. And uh, unfortunately, this is a rehash of the same story. What I want to point out to you is that there is clear-cut published data that the use of diuretics in the setting of acute kidney injury is harmful. There is in-hospital mortality, which is about 30 to 40 percent, non-recovery of renal function between 50 to 80 percent, and the point is that it should be discouraged. Having said that, there is subset analysis of these patients which suggests that the group that did bad was the group that did not respond to diuretics. Therefore, this is still up for grabs, and there are ongoing studies, particularly by Reinaldo Bellomo, who is very well known to this audience in Europe and Australia, which are ongoing, so stay tuned. Now, we have tried different things to treat acute kidney injury. Diuretics, low dopamine led to atrial fibrillation. Thank God it's gone. Uh, Manitol led to osmotic damage to the tubules, and so forth. The point is that we do not have a proven and effective pharmacological therapy for the management of acute kidney injury. The group at the Brigham and Women's Hospital Ben Humphreys and John Bonventry have done studies, <coughs> among other scientists, using mesenchymal stem cells, which are pro-angiogenic and anti-inflammatory, mainly in rats. The results are not encouraging. We were all very happy in May of 2015 when we saw this publication in JAMA saying that remote ischemic preconditioning was, minima, or was decreasing the incidence of acute kidney injury. Unfortunately, like anything else in medicine, if you stay tuned, back in October, a few months later, this other study published in the New England Journal of Medicine said, no way. There is no evidence of benefit just yet on remote ischemic preconditioning. So the only FDA-approved treatment for established AKI, ladies and gentlemen, is dialysis. So you still depend on the nephrologist. What are the indications for renal support in acute kidney injury? Well, volume overload, metabolic acidosis, and hyperkalemia, which are resistant to medical management. Uremia, it's another. And azotemia without uremic manifestations is another. The problem is that azotemia without uremic manifestations or uremia, unless you're clearly diagnosed in a case of uremic pericarditis or encephalopathy is not very easy to ascertain. I have had many runs with critical care people and residents about what they consider uremia, and I don't. Now, who is right? Who knows? The problem is that this paper, New England Journal of Medicine, 2007, by two giants in nephrology, Timothy Meyer and Tom Hosterer, let me just read you. Today, the term uremia is used loosely to describe the illness accompanying kidney failure that cannot be explained by derangements in extracellular volume, inorganic ion concentration, or lack of known renal synthetic products. So, who knows? Uh, we don't see the uremic frost, thank God, anymore. When we listen and we detect the pericardial rap, fine. When we uh, have an altered patient that can, uh, mental status changes which cannot be explained otherwise, fine. But otherwise, it's very difficult to make that diagnosis. So when we are called in, we think about, okay, what type of dialysis are we going to do? Should that patient begin dialysis based upon the level of azotemia duration of oliguria, stage of acute kidney injury, and <coughs> what dose of dialysis should be used is more better. Now, we also think that is this patient going to survive? Should that patient be put through uh, a dialytic therapy? What are the chances of recovery of kidney function? What are the other aspects, such as volume management, drug dosing, and something that we seem to forget at time is cost. 
There are different modalities of renal replacement therapy, as this audience knows. Intermittent hemodialysis, which we've been doing since the 60s, which utilizes both diffusion and, if you pull fluid, convection in terms of solute removal. Continuous therapy, CVVH, mainly convection, CVVHD, mainly diffusion, CVVHDF, both. Newer modalities such as prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy are popping up everywhere. And the old timer of peritoneal dialysis has been delegated to the museum for now, following the uh, appearance of continuous renal replacement modalities. Of note, in the ATN study, which was a VA NIH co-sponsored study, as the degree of illness worsened, the majority of patients were on continuous renal replacement therapy. Ravi Mehta, a pioneer in uh, renal replacement therapy that works at UC San Diego, did a single center study now 15 years ago, um, pretty much the same uh, degree of illness as elucidated by Apache's course, uh, and he observed uh, an improvement in the, um, I'm sorry, he observed no improvement in mortality or renal recovery with CRT versus intermittent modalities. When you compare intermittent hemodialysis with um, diffusive chronic uh, continuous renal replacement therapy as shown by Augustine, also there is no difference between the modalities. When you combine diffusion and convection and compare it with intermittent hemodialysis, no difference in mortality. Forest diagram shows you pretty much the same thing. Uh, there is no difference in outcome between uh, CRT or intermittent renal replacement therapy. The COMBIN trial, which is continuous versus intermittent uh, modalities being compared, also shows no difference. Now, in terms of uh, losing a native kidney function, there is some data which suggests that intermittent dialysis does so more frequently than continuous replacement therapy, that, but that is not shown by all the studies. What we need to remember is that with intermittent hemodialysis, particularly if you prescribe the wrong ultrafiltration, you're going to get more hypotension and more tubular cell injury. Now, <coughs> when you compare in terms of fluid balance and blood pressure, the intermittent hemodialysis versus the continuous uh, forms of renal replacement therapy, certainly the goals in terms of fluid balance and blood pressure are much more stable with continuous modalities. The Picard study did show that the amount of uh, fluid being uh, retained by the patient is much less with continuous replacement therapies. Therefore, it does appear that continuous renal replacement therapy may have some advantages over intermittent hemodialysis. Those advantages, without question, have been shown primarily with patients with hepatic failure, brain edema, and acute brain injury. Nobody will disagree with that. What about cost? Difficult issue to assess, uh, particularly because it depends upon where you work, uh, how much the hospital decides to charge, blah, blah, blah. What we all need to remember is certainly with continuous modalities, there is a nursing uh, component as well as a laboratory component, which is much more pronounced than in intermittent hemodialysis. And the data from three different publications does show that continuous renal replacement therapy is much more expensive than intermittent hemodialysis. What about sepsis? Is there any difference between uh, two forms of uh, continuous renal replacement therapy, small volume and high volume? The idea is that these cytokines in sepsis 
<coughs> maybe better removed by convection. Well, unfortunately, this particular study uh, did not show any difference whatsoever. As we all know, there are immunoabsorption studies being done in sepsis. Stay tuned. Now, in terms of prolonged intermittent modalities such as extended daily dialysis, sustained low-efficiency dialysis, or the new one, uh, sustained low-efficiency daily diafiltration. When you uh, compare hemodynamic uh, parameters such as blood pressure, heart rate, cardiac output, and systemic vascular resistance, with a con a continuous prolonged versus CDDH, no difference. Um, <coughs> in terms of prolonged intermittent renal replacement therapy versus CRT, in terms of survival, no difference. Uh, forest um, diagrams in terms of randomized controlled trials on the left side versus observational studies, in terms of mortality or kidney recovery, no difference. So the KDGO, the, our international organization very nicely has suggested that we should use continuous and intermittent renal replacement therapy as complementary therapies in acute kidney injury patients. Uh, certainly nobody will disagree of using CRT rather than intermittent for hemodynamically unstable patients. But mind you, the old timers such as myself did do intermittent chemo with vasopressors on board. So the fact that patients are on vasopressors is not an absolute contraindication for the use of intermittent hemodialysis. Case in point, you have a very catabolic patient, very acidemic, very hyperkalemic. You just cannot keep on doing CRT. It's not going to work. You need to use the, both modalities, intermittent to suck the stuff out, and then to maintain it, use your CRT. Now, certainly in terms of brain injury, uh, liver disease, by far, CRT is the way to go. Paul Titian, another giant in nephrology in 1960, which is uh, before I started, <laughs> uh, said that while there is increased recognition of the value of earlier dialysis, the published consensus and the practice in many centers at present is still to apply dialysis to the sicker individual, not a smart way to do things. Uh, thank God we have all changed that. So the question is, what about the timing of dialysis? Well, a bunch of studies have been published. Retrospective one, randomized controlled trials, <coughs> as well as observational studies. The BUN was um, at the initiation in the early uh, forms of therapy was in general 60 or less. The one view um, and value to be utilized for the late initiation was usually about 100. Now we keep using BUN. BUN is not toxic. BUN is not the uremic toxin. BUN is a surrogate market of something. And that's something we have no idea what it is is three pages and pages of compounds, but we don't know what it is. Now, the Picard study, once again, was the first one to show, and now we're talking 10 years ago. This is, let me remind you, the study that encompassed uh, five different academic centers. They dialyzed uh, a group early, beyond less than 76, or late, over 76, they were comparable, and there was some suggestion that the survival <coughs> of the group, which was dialyzed early, was far better. In terms of uh, cardiac surgery and acute kidney injury, if you dialyze them early, uh, certainly there is a far better outcome than if you dialyze them late. In terms of trauma, our own group here has shown now many, many centuries ago, 1999, that if you dialyze them early, the outcome is better than if you dialyze them late. Uh, in terms of forest uh, diagrams of multiple studies, meta-analysis in 2011 are showing an advantage of dialyzing these patients early. 2012, more meta-analysis also 
slight uh, changes which favor early dialysis. Dr. Bauman did an outstanding study where he compared three groups of patients, early high volume CVDH, early low volume CVDH, and late low volume uh, CVDH with comparable SOFA scores, <coughs> no difference in outcome. So it put a break into this early versus uh, late kind of issue. The Canadians um, are, under, uh, are doing the standard versus accelerated initiation of renal replacement therapy. They completed a pilot study. There is going to be an international study which is going to recruit a large number of patients. In principle, these um, um, Pilot study, and by the way, I found my boss here, Matt Weir. I didn't know he was Canadian. <laughs> anyway, um, <coughs> has shown that there is no difference in mortality at 90 days. So we'll see what the international study shows us. Now, you all have seen recent publications from France in the New England Journal of Medicine this past month where they uh, perform a randomized controlled trial looking at patients being dialyzed early versus late. These were patients with stage three acute kidney injury and they showed that there is no difference in outcome. In terms of the use of a dialytic therapy, certainly the group that was dialyzed later <coughs> did not require as much dialysis uh, as the group that was dialyzed early of interest. The group that was dialyzed late had a preservation of urine output. My answer to that is, so what? I mean, uh, that is expected because you certainly are removing the urea by dialyzing them early, which is the main trigger of urine output. Now, what this study did show uh, is that there was a decreased incidence of catheter-related bloodstream uh, infections in the group that was dialyzed late. It did not reach um, statistical significance, though. Uh, it also um, did show that um, uh, the patients who received renal replacement therapy were far less in the group that was dialyzed uh, late, and that was statistical significant. Now, at the tail of this study comes this study from Germany, uh, a week later. Uh, these folks looked at stage two acute kidney injury, and they do show with great limitations to the study design. <coughs> you are invited to our Renal Journal Club tomorrow where we're going to piece out uh, this study in detail as well as the previous one. But it basically does appear to suggest that early renal replacement therapy is the way to go in terms of mortality. Now, um, what do we do with all this information? Well, initiate renal replacement therapy emergently when life-threatening changes occur. But we shouldn't be waiting for those unless they walk in from the street like that. Look at the whole picture. Do not just look at isolated values of BON and creatinine. That's not the way this works. Uh, is once again, the whole patient. So the conclusion at the moment is that in acute kidney injury, there is insufficient data to determine the proper timing of initiation of dialytic therapy. What about dose? Well, Claudio Ronco, uh, now 16 years ago, took three different group of uh, patients and put them on CVVH at different rates of renal replacement fluid. And he suggested then that the way to go was with 35 ml per kilo per hour, which was associated with uh, a far greater survival than if you choose 20 ml per kilo per hour. Uh, there was no difference between 35 and 45, so everybody jumped into the bandwagon, more is merrier. Then, <clears throat> two years later, came this study from Germany. 
in the New England Journal of Medicine saying dialyze these patients intermittently every day of the week. And nephrologists with big pockets said, great, we're going to do that. Uh, there was uh, decreased mortality in the daily hemodialysis group, and they also suggested resolution of acute renal failure much more promptly. Guess what? They had to retract the study. Now, <coughs> there have been two randomized studies, one in this country, the VANIH-sponsored ATN study, as well as the renal study in Australia and New Zealand, uh, which were published a year apart, and they used two different doses of um, uh, dialysis, uh, continuous renal replacement, as well as intermittent. There was a mixed bag which was comparable in terms of dialysis adequacy, and there was no evidence that more is merrier. Therefore, most of us these days, in terms of continuous renal replacement therapy, are aiming for a replacement solution or a fluent rate of about 25 mLs per kilo per hour. Now, this study uh, published by this international group, people from uh, Europe, people from uh, Alabama, uh, etc., people from Pittsburgh, uh, which is the best study, or best kidney study, which is beginning and end supporting therapy for the kidney study tells us that the development of acute renal failure in the ICU is common. A third to two-thirds of the patients admitted to ICU will develop acute kidney injury. Uh, the majority of uh, patients that develop acute renal failure in the ICU, according to them, 70% of them will require renal replacement therapy. As I mentioned earlier, they also found out that chronic kidney disease is a major risk factor for the development of acute renal failure. Dependence on chronic dialysis is a common occurrence uh, following acute renal failure in the ICU. Much like the ATN study, this study also showed that CRT is the most commonly applied renal replacement modality. And the problem is that despite significant improvement in dialysis technology and critical care medicine, the hospital mortality is still high, 60%. So the failure for survival to improve over the past 20 to 30 years, despite the cited advantages, could be largely explained by the fact that the severity of illness of the AKI population, both with respect to chronic comorbidities such as heart disease, diabetes, etc., and acute comorbidities such as sepsis, liver failure, has also increased in parallel. Now, as I was uh, preparing this talk, I ran into this paper, just published, which I uh, alluded to earlier, by really no slouches, particularly Mark Sarnak at Tufts. These people are very prominent. So I look at it, and this is what they say. They did a registry analysis of, uh, acute, uh, of dialysis-dependent acute kidney injury and they are seeing a marked decrease in mortality. When I saw that, I was wondering what they were drinking. Um, so it's interesting, but I put my thinking cap, and I said, well, let's see, are they really comparing what you and I see, apples, oranges, the statistical magic? Could there be a limitation of registry studies? <coughs> so, Einstein reminds us that the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious, is the source of all true art and science, and I think that data is very, very interesting to me. I was ready to go and tell Mike, Mike, thank you for everything you guys are doing. Look what you have done. You have dramatically decreased mortality in acute kidney injury from 60% to the 20s. What's the secret of your success? I think there is more to this. Um, so, um, on that note, uh, I will open it uh, for questions. I still think that there are certain things that uh, we need to do uh, confronted with acute kidney injury. Number one is the prevention. And I think we need to identify patients that are at high risk for acute kidney injury, the elderly, the diabetic, the heart failure, the patient with underlying chronic kidney disease and uh, consult nephrology at that time. 
number two, in terms of dialytic therapy, there appears to be a hint in the literature that continuous replacement therapy might be the way to go. Uh, without question, in patients with brain edema, in patients that are massively fluid overloaded, <coughs> patients that are hemodynamically unstable, but what we should stop doing is the rubber stamping. That is to say, applying the same prescription to the 70 kilo patient, to the 120 kilo patient, they are different. And one problem at this institution is we do not monitor the adequacy of the treatments that we do. Everybody gets the same thing. The young, the old, the heavy, and the skinny, and that's not possible. We also need to prevent the number one cause of mortality in these patients, which is infection. And the number one source of the infection is the urinary tract. I'm sure you, like me, walk into patient's room and see the Christmas decoration, as I call it, which is the Foley catheter, collecting germs. Why do we do that? We need to get rid of it. I mean, we have the bladder scan, which is very good, except for cirrhotics with ascites, that can guide us when to do intermittent catheterization. I also don't like to see, personally, femoral quintons in patients with high BMI. In that particular group, is susceptible to infection. So we need to do away with it. Let's also stop adding nephrotoxics to these patients. Case in point, unless it's absolutely necessary, let's not keep doing contrast uh, studies uh, to patients with acute kidney injury. The false statement that ATM protects against ATM is false. I mean, you get additional injury. Um, overall, I think that we are doing a very good job. Unfortunately, <clears throat> the mortality is still sky high, and I'm sorry, I don't have a magic potion to give you. <clears throat> as far as the timing is concerned, we should not look at isolated values of BON, creatinine, or what have you. We should look at the patient, uh, particularly trends. Uh, if we have a patient that is slowly showing signs of increased protein catabolic rate, even though the urine output may be preserved, maybe we should dialyze early, uh, as opposed to wait for the inevitable. Um, but every case is different, and basically it has to be a team effort where nephrology with critical care, pulmonary, cardiology, and surgery get together. On that note, thank you for your attention, and I'm open for questions. Yes, sir. Sir, you, you discussed um, the cost analysis between intermittent hemodialysis versus CRRT, and then the um, outcome data between prolonged intermittent dialysis versus CRRT, but I'm curious if there's any cost difference between prolonged intermittent dialysis versus CRRT. So, <clears throat> the, the answer, first of all, I mean, if I understand you correctly, is that is there any cost difference uh, when you adjust variables between intermittent and continuous replacement forms of so therapy? specifically the prolonged intermittent dialysis versus CRRT. The prolonged intermittent has not been looked at. Okay. What has been looked at is CRT versus intermittent. And there is a new publication from Europe, <coughs> which just has uh, come out, which uh, suggests that when you adjust for all the confounding variables, it may be a head-to-head -head issue. Not as we initially suspected from the data I show you, that intermittent is cheaper than continuous. But I think the final word remains to be seen. Good question. So Mario, with, uh, we know that at the onset of renal replacement therapy, based on the studies you showed, that uh, volume status uh, is an important um, determinant of the outcome, clinical outcome of, of patients. Right? One of my pet peeves is the volume status or lack of attention to it. Um, in the studies that compared the intermittent to continuous, 
um, how frequently were the intermittent uh, dialysis doses provided? Were they on a daily basis? And what, um, how closely was volume status tracked in those studies? Because uh, you know, it's in, you showed in some of them that renal that continuous actually had lower overall volume uh, uh, in, inside the patient, greater volume removal compared to intermittent strikes. But how so intermittent, for the most part, is not done every day. And the ultrafiltration, which is prescribed, most of the part is arbitrary. And again, we are trying to achieve a lot in a short period of time. Um, till very recently, we were pulling fluid um, in an arbitrary and dramatic fashion. There is new data which suggests that we shouldn't be pulling more than 10 cc's per kilo per hour with an intermittent dialytic form. Um, certainly, as you know, if we take the usual example of a 70 kilo man, you're talking, what, two liters uh, over a period of the Maryland way, which is three hours of dialysis. God forbid we want to do more, um, which is not enough. So that's why both therapies need to be used jointly, so to speak. Uh, if you have a patient who is catabolic, you can do your intermittent, and you can, if that patient happens to also be fluid overloaded, then you can use a modality, for example, such as scaf in the interdialytic period to gradually take off the fluid, which is, I think, the way to go. One of my concerns and sort of questions is how uh, uh, is is it purely the volume overload that's contributing in, in the intermittent group that's contributing to the perceived benefits in some of the studies of uh, continuous uh, dialysis? Right. Well, I think so. But plus, don't forget that the uh, hemodynamic instability during that ultrafiltration phase. In the setting of ongoing changes in osmolality brought about by diffusion is very pronounced. So uh, I think that without question, CRT uh, in terms of uh, gradual volume removal and maintenance of hemodynamic stability is the way to go. Yes, sir. Just, just as an add-on, we've been playing in the CSICU with using CRT as kind of an intermittent dialysis at night. Um, we put the CRT on at the change of shift, then we take it down to the next change of shift. And the reason we're doing that is that a lot of times there may be a little snidge in the weapon up, but still need a little bit of volume off during the night and you can't keep up. And what we're seeing is it's, it's really interesting is that when you hook it up, the urine output goes down during the night, and then the next morning you turn it off, wait about two hours, and the urine output starts picking up again. I think there's a real correlation. Between uh, CVH and the amount of urine you make, I, mean, I can't quite get it yet. The other reason we're doing that is, is that, believe it or not, that the other question is much cheaper than bringing in a nurse for dialysis. They're already up to their eyeballs and work. So I already have a one-to-one -one nurse in the room usually. So it is actually cheaper to do it at the bottom line. The, I don't know what you think about this. Well, basically, what you are doing is exactly what people are doing with these prolonged continuous modalities. Uh, so, you know, you don't need the dialysis nurse to come and do a sled procedure from 7 p. 7 a.m. A trained um, ICU nurse can do that. And not only because it allows, uh, it's cheaper, as you pointed out, but it also allows for the patient to be mobilized, as opposed to CRT, where they are in there in formalin kind of. Um, but the changes in urine output that you described are most likely related to urea uh, being sucked out through the night and during the day builds up uh, and as a result of that urine output uh, may pick up again. But yeah, I mean, I think it's the way to go. No question. Yes, sir. Paul. Um, this is actually Dr. Cohen's question from a couple of days. You mentioned biomarkers briefly, what do you think of the nephrochapping? Is there any utility? On what? Nephrochapping. growth factor. You know, um, when I worked uh, in Boston, 
I was uh, indoctrinated into Kim One because Dr. Bambentre the Brigham, another giant in acute kidney injury, does that. The kidney injury molecule one, they even marketed the stuff, and unfortunately, poor Joey lost money in it because Kim One is not panning out. Um, Interleukin 6, as you know, has been in the market as well. Uh, I have not seen a lot of data on this particular biomarker you mentioned, but I've seen quite a bit on NGAL, uh, which is uh, really being used both in pediatric and adults, and it might be the way to go. I mean, certainly it will uh, help as we detect this problem early before changes in creatinine ever come about. But I don't think we're ready for prime time with them yet. Yes? So we did almost all three of those studies here, Ruby and uh, I can't remember I'm old, well, they were all named it. Um, the interesting thing is the company did the studies and then now they're not putting any money into, they only put money into the studies to get it approved as a marker. So it was a very easy study because it showed we don't damage yet. But what they haven't done is put money into studies to look at how you use it in a clinical situation. And I must say, we, we did the, the, cardio, the cardiac surgery one also. And boy, I, I tell you, there's a, there's a definite correlation between those numbers going up very early right. before the creatinine does. And if we can come up with a, a study to look at interventions that would avoid that and use that marker to start the intervention early, I think that's where the, that's where the gold is in these. But nobody's putting any money into it. And I don't think the government's going to give us any money for it either, which is too bad. And really interesting is Cullen was the chief investigator for that, for all those studies, and they haven't done a darn thing with it. Yeah, right. So it's kind of weird, but hopefully somebody will do something with it. Because yeah. it was very sensitive. There is a pretty specific uh, real injury, mm -hmm. no doubt in my mind. Well, excellent comment. But we'll see with biomarkers. Yes, Paul. Okay, I think one more couple comments. Um, you mentioned infection. What's your thinking about? So, um, funny you should ask. Uh, that has been another sore point. Um, so, interventional radiology here is under the false assumption that tunnel catheters are not to be used in the intensive care unit. Now, what the problem is you go to the literature and there is not much published, except that there was a poster presentation by the group at the Brigham at the last American Society of Nephrology meeting in San Diego this past year. It's a single center study, but it does show that in the setting of dialysis-dependent acute kidney injury in the ICU, the use of tunnel catheters is associated with less infection and better adequacy of dialysis. One study. So um, I think that there is more to come, but my concern is that we, as a team here, and we are all at fault, we are not looking at adequacy of dialysis. And that is my concern. I mean, a Quinton catheter has a recirculation rate of 20%. It's usually less than 15 with a tunnel catheter. So if we are using only in intermittent, let's say, three hours with limited blood flow because the catheter doesn't work well, limited dialysis flow rate because we don't want to spend the money, and when I say money in dialysis, then the end result is suboptimal dialysis. That's where, for example, CRT is going to be a far better option. Okay. Yeah. Two, two practical points there. Um, our problem is with the, the tunnel lines, number one, but also our radiology department needs wiring lines, which is absolutely And then the other thing with the tunnel lines is, is that as soon as one of my patients get a fever, that tunnel line comes right out again. And the problem is that we work in a capitated room and they charge $2,000 to put that tunnel line in. So that's just a practical point. Um, I forgot what the other thing I was going to say, but uh, I think I'll be just here over there. Um, oh, oh, I know. Just so you all know, our trialysate catheter, I can't believe I said the word, it's such a stupid 
But Say that again. They, they have a catheter and uh, a pigtail on it. I will say it again. And the problem is, I hope you guys realize that catheter is really not a good catheter. It is really not a good catheter. Say that again. <laughs> I know we're lazy, and I know we don't want to put in another central line. But you know, if you keep using these lines, you're just going to have nothing but trouble. It's a 12 French catheter. It's not a 14 French like the regular dialysis catheter. So I ask you all to avoid it and just be smart and learn how to do subclavians and put an IJ in on this side and put a subclavian in on this side. Because that way you won't have any problems, you won't have a nurse calling you all night, you won't take down 12 CRT machines in the middle of the night, which is going to happen. Every time you put <coughs> suckers down, it costs a bit of money. So please stop using the stupid, unless it's absolutely necessary and absolutely can put it in on the right so thank you for those words now the problem is I am with you in everything you said but when I go to the literature I am like the old lady where is the beef yeah. meaning I don't find the data of evidence-based medicine that I can uh, support my contention by Listen, as, uh, Sam, uh, I, I just want to remind this group, the Nephrology Division and the Critical Care Group have invited Dr. Paul Palepsky uh, from the University of Pittsburgh, BA, and he will be here in September. And uh, I want to uh, make sure that you all get an opportunity to listen to Paul. Paul is a giant in acute kidney injury. He has spearheaded the ATN study. He is also an active participant in the Canadian-US uh, study, and it will be wonderful uh, for all of us uh, to uh, meet with him, learn from him, and develop uh, joint uh, uh, projects uh, for the future. Thank you all for coming.